Hello and welcome to the Semantic Cybersecurity Brief, our weekly podcast where we discuss all things cybersecurity. I'm Dick O'Brien and joining me today are Semantic Threat Researchers Bridget O'Gorman and Stephen Doherty. In this week's podcast, we'll be talking about two new pieces of semantic research. The first is our latest research into the cyber espionage group known as AP328. And the second is a new paper about cryptojacking. We'll also be discussing the first case of uh, law enforcement compelling a suspect to unlock their iPhone using Face ID. But first, let's talk about politics. Because if you follow British politics, you'll probably know that the Conservative Party conference is taking place in Birmingham this week. Um, In the run-up to the conference, everyone was expecting that the hot topic was going to be Brexit, since party members are at loggerheads over negotiations to leave the EU. But we briefly got a respite from that because on Saturday, the day before the conference opened, attention shifted to the topic of app security. That's because the Conservative Party had created a smartphone app for the conference and it transpires that it wasn't very secure. The discovery was first made by Guardian journalist Dawn Foster, who uh, then shared her findings on Twitter. The problem was that the app employed poor authentication and indeed you could probably argue there was no authentication because all you needed to do to log in was enter an email address. Once word got out on Twitter, people very quickly realised that all they had to do was guess a party member's email address and use that to log in. And then once they were logged in, they could access their contact information or indeed edit their profile. And not surprisingly, lots of people couldn't resist the temptation to do just that. Environment Secretary Michael Gove had his profile picture changed to that of media baron Rupert Murdoch, um, his former employer. And Boris Johnson, the former Foreign Secretary, had his profile picture changed to a pornographic picture. (laughs) Johnson, it seems, was a popular target. Uh, His name and job title were changed to something I probably shouldn't repeat on this podcast. And it seems that several people got his cell phone number and started texting him. I've got a screenshot of one here and it rather helpfully says, Hi, Boris. The Conservative Party app is a bit crap. It has no security. And I'm I'm sure that's probably not the worst one he got so eventually access to the app was temporarily shut down but it was back online again in time for the conference's opening on sunday and according to the conservative party chairman brandon lewis the app is now functioning securely so i think the moral of that story is that security lapses can not only lead to data breaches but they can also as we see here lead to some grave embarrassment for your organization yeah, speaking of which, they could have tra- changed uh, Theresa May's profile picture to a dancing queen. Did you see that footage of her oh, dancing I did. on stage? Yes, yes, she danced onto stage. So, yeah, I don't know what to say about that, whose idea it was or why she thought it was a good idea. Uh, so I think while we can offer tips on app security, we can't offer any tips on dancing. No, d- definitely not. <laughs> OK, moving on to more serious matters. Um, earlier on today, uh, we published a new piece of research on the cyber espionage group APT28. And we're joined by Stephen Doherty, who is the principal analyst on this research. Uh, thanks for coming on, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Okay. And I guess before you talk about what's new here, maybe we should uh, let our listeners get up to speed and you could maybe tell us the background about who APT28 are, because I gather they, they've been around for a long time now, haven't they? Yeah. So uh, this is definitely one of the most active groups that our team tracks. Uh, they've been active since at least 2007, so over a decade of operations. And they've targeted 
number of different organizations uh, they're pretty prolific and they tend to target um, organizations governments military uh, defense contracts contractors that type of organization and uh, they can be in multiple organizations at the same time so uh, we think it's like a pretty significant group who are well resourced and uh, well able to run concurrent campaigns against multiple organizations at the same time um, the group itself, APT28, is known by uh, many people in the industry as one of the uh, the most prolific attack groups. Yeah. And um, the main reason behind uh, looking into this group was they, uh, they interestingly took a bit of a diversion from their normal uh, attacking activities and uh, were found by uh, uh, CrowdStrike to be on... Um, machines in the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, in 2016. Uh, and this was quite an interesting organization to have attacked. Uh, it was on the run-up to the presidential elections. So the fact that they had found them uh, poking around in that organization uh, was quite suspicious and uh, kind of a diversion from what we would normally see that group doing. Yeah, because these guys, they're usually quite low-key, um, but the, these attacks were very public because they leaked all the data that they stole uh, online afterwards didn't they well they found they certainly found them in the in the organization yeah. themselves uh, like oh, we've we've no direct evidence to say they're that's they're, true yeah, yeah 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 but certainly the fact that they were found in there is quite suspicious uh, yeah. given the timing of the elections yeah. and the yeah. organization that they were found in yeah yeah okay um and um they were also involved uh, i believe in an attack on wada the the World Anti-Doping Agency too. Yeah, they came out with a claim saying that yeah. APT28 were also f responsible for uh, attacks against them. Yeah. Um, so that was another kind of public uh, outing of the group mm -hmm. around the time. So I think uh, typically these uh, actors are like, their main goal is to be discreet yeah. and not get caught, go in, uh, find the information uh, and then take it back out without being discovered. Um, but during this time period, there was a lot of noise mm -hmm. and a lot of uh, public activity, I would say, around uh, the group, what they were up to uh, and how they were operating, the tools that they were using. Yeah, because, yeah, the, I mean, it's, it's rare that uh, a cyber espionage group kind of gets into the mainstream news like this. And they're probably one of the few groups that a lot of the, the public know about as exactly, a result. Yeah. So you, you, you've been doing some research on what they've been up to, um, I guess, since 2016. And uh, what have you found? Yeah, so uh, this research was uh, really based around trying to see uh, what the group has been doing over the last two years, trying to uh, keep tabs on the organisations that they've been going after. And it seems as if they've returned to like these low-key attacks uh, against military, embassies, government, um, and again, uh, the number of organizations is, from our perspective, less than uh, has been typically seen over the, the previous years. So it seems as if they're, they've gone into a more focused operation and they're targeting, again, more of the traditional organizations that we would expect uh, in Europe and uh, in South America at the moment. So um, much more uh, in line with activity that we would be used uh, to the group. Thing. So that they've kind of gone back to their roots, so to speak, yeah. or they look like they've gone back to their roots and it's more the kind of classic spying operations, governments, military, that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, okay, and um, I gather, uh, you know, that this shift is not the only new thing because there's also been some kind of changes in the tools they use. Is that right? Uh, we've seen rewriting some tools and rolling out some new ones. Yeah, so they're they're traditionally known for, um, well, there's kind of three mainstay tools. Uh, Sophocy, which is kind of the first tool that uh, tends to be found on a, on a network is their kind of um, initial foothold onto a network. Yeah. Uh, and then they have a, a more comprehensive backdoor called X-Agent, which uh, they use, and that has much more functionality, which gives them much more control over the, the machines that they're on. And then uh, a third one, X-Tunnel, which is used to kind of uh, communicate to, between machines that are kind of, let's say, deeper within a network yeah. and uh, help exfiltrate information uh, over an encrypted channel. I see. So these are the, the three main tools that they have, and they have been un- actively developed over the last decade, let's mm. say, um, incremental changes to them. Um, what we've seen in the last year that at least some of them have been rewritten in .NET, so uh, there may be an effort by the group to kind of retool some of the well-known Trojans that they are using uh, and then redevelop them in .NET and uh, much more, most likely to try and evade detection uh, because uh, obviously their tools have been exposed quite considerably. Um, it would make sense for a group like this yeah. to maybe shift to new tools uh, or re-implement old tools in uh, in different fo- in different formats like .NET. Okay, so if you rewrite it, it means that kind of like the tool would have a different fingerprint. It may look different, exactly. Yeah. That it may it may. Help but the functionality them. would remain the same. So yeah. they, they yeah. still require these functions in their tools um, it's just that they will rewrite them to circumvent uh, existing knowledge of uh, what we know about the group okay and i gather they've started um, using a rootkit as well is that correct uh yes so uh recently ESET published some research on uh, uh the same group apt28 using a uefi uh, as a way of persisting on a machine um this is very low level uh persistence that we uh, we rarely if ever see uh, where they're able to uh, basically insert malware into the loading process uh, very early on and then once the operating system uh, boots uh, you're already infected with malware attributed to the group uh, which is called lojax um, the reason they might do this is it's an extremely stealthy persistence um, it's very hard for uh, general user to get rid of an infection like this or even know that it's uh, on their machine uh, even installing or uh, wiping the disk uh, doesn't touch the firmware where this is uh, apparently located so um, this is uh, a great length for an actor to go to in order to uh, remain persistent on machines um, and we believe they typically will only do this in very certain cases where maybe a victim is a extremely high value to them and they really want to maintain some persistence on the network. Okay, yeah, so it's sort of rolled out for high value targets possibly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, um, all right. Now, I suppose the um, midterm elections are coming up in the US next month and there's been lots of speculation about whether we've seen more, we'll see more cyber attacks this time around. And I guess some people might think, okay, well, if they're not been focusing on political targets in recent times, maybe there's no need to worry. But 
we probably shouldn't uh, take that for granted. We need to warn against complacency because um, there's no guarantee that these guys won't turn their attention again, isn't it? Exactly. Um, although we haven't seen anything, we've only uh, a certain visibility into the group's activities uh, based on the customer base that we have. Um, so you would have to obviously be aware that some groups are, are willing to go to these lengths to target uh, organizations involved in like the political process. So um, you can never be too careful uh, and maybe not turning a blind eye and ignoring the fact that uh, some groups are uh, willing to go after these organizations. Um, it might even spur some other, org- other groups to uh, participate in this type of activity in the years to come. Yeah, okay. So political organizations, they, they need to still maintain their guard, so to speak. Yeah. Sure, yeah. yeah. Okay, thanks, Stephen. Um, now, we're going to go and uh, talk about our second piece of research, uh, which we have published this week, which has been a white paper about crypto jacking. Bridget, you have been working on this white paper, so maybe you could tell us more about it and maybe start uh, by explaining, first of all, to our listeners uh, what crypto jacking is. Yeah, sure. No problem. Yeah. So basically, crypto jacking occurs when cyber criminals surreptitiously run coin miners on uh, the devices of, you know, victims of, of businesses, of consumers without their knowledge and use the power of their central processing unit, their CPU, to mine cryptocurrencies. Um, so I suppose I'll break that down a bit. Uh, so cryptocurrencies are digital currencies. So the ones that most people would have heard of would be like Bitcoin, Ethereum, Monero. But in the case of these CPU miners that are run on regular computers, um, we're primarily talking about Monero. Um, Bitcoin is too slow to mine, too costly to mine, so it can't be mined on regular computers like this. Um, and basically coin miners then are computer programs or scripts that can basically mine, as in create these cryptocurrencies, and so create revenue for, in this case, in the case of crypto jacking, cyber criminals. Now, coin miners themselves are not actually illegal. Some people might choose to run coin miners on their computer themselves to try and make money for themselves. For themselves, our businesses also websites can also run browser-based coin miners which is actually the area where we've seen the greatest growth in crypto jacking has very much been with browser-based um, crypto jacking, where basically, in this case, cyber criminals use scripts that they inject into web pages. And basically, when an individual is on this web page, when they have the web page open, the power of their CPU is being used to mine cryptocurrencies. But some websites can or could choose to potentially use browser-based coin miners to create revenue for their website instead of using ads but which isn't a problem provided that they tell people they're doing that so i mean really crypto jacking the issue with crypto jacking is that these coin miners are being are using people's computer power and without their knowledge to create cryptocurrency revenue for cyber criminals so that's basically what crypto jacking is and it's something we've seen a huge growth in we saw a huge growth in the last year yeah um, so we're looking at semantic telemetry and um, we recorded more than 8 million crypto jacking events in December of 2017, which is kind of when we saw that activity peak, um, which is just a huge amount of activity. Like it was really mind boggling. I mean, it kind of grew like a, in, I think, August of last year, we recorded, you know, less than 30,000 crypto jacking events. Wow. So, I mean, the surge was really massive. And while we have seen it taper off somewhat in 2018, 
still this summer in July and August, we still recorded almost 5 million cryptojacking events. So the activity there is still very significant. Okay, so it's huge. And I guess one thing to stress is, because uh, I know like any time I've discussed this topic with, you know, with people who haven't heard about it before, they always kind of get confused between you know, stealing Bitcoins and using computers. And they say, well, like not that many people have Bitcoins. Why is this such a problem? It's not stealing your Bitcoins. It's using, or it's using your computer, using your computer power to mine um, cryptocurrencies. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So what is... You, you talked about the huge explosion in um, malicious uh, crypto uh, jacking activity in like last year and then this year. What's what's the reason for all of this? Like what's driving it? So I suppose a few factors came together that really drove this. And I guess there are probably two kind of really primary reasons for it. And I guess the f- main one, because obviously cyber criminals are all about money, was there was a huge surge in the value of more or less all cryptocurrencies um, at the end of 2017. Like they just surged massively. Um, I mean, I think Bitcoin went up to being worth like $20,000 or something for one yeah, coin, something like something, crazy, right, something yeah. huge. But I suppose that, um, you know, pulled up all the other cryptocurrencies. So Monero, which is um, what we're primarily talking about here, that surged to a value of almost $500 per coin at its peak in kind of December, January last year. So it was a huge growth. Um, so cryptocurrencies then became a huge potential source of income for cyber criminals. Like it's hard to say really how much they've made from them because really with these um, coin miners, it's a lot to do with kind of, um, you know, the amount of scale that they have. So like infecting one computer or getting one user to, you know, have your coin miner running on their machine isn't going to make a huge amount of money. But if you have a botnet of you know, 100,000 computers, um, you know, you can make like serious money, like up to, like we calculated you can make up to three quarters of a million if you had 100,000 computers with file-based miners on them running for a month, you could make a serious amount of money. Yeah, okay, that's serious business, all right. So yeah. it is all about the scale. Um, and then as well, the barriers, kind of the barriers for entry for cyber criminals kind of lowered last year as well. Um, the, a service called CoinHive was launched in September 2017. And uh, basically CoinHive was a mining script that allowed cryptocurrencies um, to be mined in a browser-based miner. So it was a browser-based mining script. And it was launched as um, an alternative for to advertising revenue for websites. That's what it was launched as and said it was marketed as. But um, evidence since then has shown that it's been used maliciously um, a lot, like more so, more that it's been used kind of, um, what's the word? Legitimately. <laughs> Legitimately, there yeah, we go. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that lowered the barrier to entry a lot for cyber criminals because it just basically meant they just needed to get this script injected into websites and then it would immediately start mining. People, once visit, people visited the website, their computing power would be used to mine these cryptocurrencies. So that helped a lot as well. It made it kind of a lot more accessible for maybe less skilled cyber criminals to make money in this area as well. And I suppose as well, Cryptojacking can go on quite under the radar for a while as well. It's not like immediately obvious. It's not like a ransomware is on your computer, so your computer just stops working. You know, you immediately can't use it. You immediately know the ransomware is there and you're going to either pay the ransom or hopefully not and take steps to get rid of it off your computer. But with cryptojacking, the, these scripts can be running on your computer for quite a while and you might not even know. You might never know it's there. Um, so that is another um, big factor that made it appealing to cyber criminals as well. 
And also with these browser-based mining scripts, they're in the browser, so they're on a website. So even fully patched machines and even machines of all different operating systems can be targeted, can be victims of this kind of activity. And we saw that as well because we saw a big surge in um, crypto jacking detections on Macs as well towards the end of last year. So it wasn't just Windows machines that were being affected by these either. Yeah, okay. Um, and... Um one of the questions people ask is, uh, you know, if people might notice it and if no money has been taken from them, is this not a victimless crime? But there are, you know, the victim, uh, there is a victim in, in this, in all of this, isn't there? Like uh, people who are targeted by it do uh, suffer in, in some ways. Yeah, they do suffer. I mean, the effects of crypto jacking is it's primarily kind of performance related, really. So, you know, the kind of immediate impacts that people are going to notice and going to be aggravated by is you know generally like their device will probably slow down significantly and um, we did some research into this and i think it was trying to open an application where and um, there was a coin miner a crypto jacker running on your machine you know it took two or three or four times longer to open applications than on a machine where nothing is running you know so there's just a slowdown device performance it can also cause batteries to overheat and also for devices to potentially become unusable which is obviously that's going to annoy people then so it's yeah. not a victimless crime in that sense um, and all these factors if uh, computers and businesses get affected all these factors are going to lead to a reduction in productivity from people getting frustrated by slow machines or people's machines becoming unusual unusable um, and obviously then if the whole um like system is impacted the whole network is impacted that's going to have a huge effect on the business and I mean, they also will lead to increased costs in the sense of electricity usage for both consumers and for businesses. And this is actually probably where people might notice that you realize that something's up if their electricity bill goes up hugely. And then also for businesses that operate in the cloud, if their bills based on CPU usage, their bills are likely to soar as well. If yeah, they could really be in trouble there. Yeah. Um, you know, and there might be lead to kind of unexpected equipment or unnecessary equipment purchases because usually when people's computers slow down, the first thing they do is go down to IT and yeah. say, I need, <laughs> I need a new computer or I need some more RAM on this. Um, okay, so you, you mentioned we'd seen a bit of a drop off in crypto jacking activity this year, but like where, you know, how do you think this is going to pan out uh, where... where um, like is this still going to be a problem going into next year yeah i mean as i said we definitely saw something of a drop but i mean i suppose it was such a fad i suppose really in ways um towards the end of last year because the profits were or the values of cryptocurrencies were so huge and i guess that is an area we've seen some fluctuations in um recently so that has led to probably the small drop off we've seen but the the activity there is still very significant i mean five million events is not not nothing like you know especially compared to this time last year like it's huge yeah. so it's still really significant and i mean we are still seeing innovation in this area because even up to a couple of months ago we saw the microtick routers and um, which we discussed previously on this podcast i'm pretty sure um where that was um they were being infected primarily in brazil it was a couple of hundred thousand of them i think infected yeah. in the end and that was targeting the web traffic going through them to inject coin mining scripts onto the web pages that were basically traveling through these routers. So, I mean, it's definitely still an area where we're seeing, you know, cyber criminals are definitely still obviously paying attention to it and trying in ways to innovate in this area. And the whole, all the attention that was really focused on cryptocurrencies and coin mining and crypto jacking in the last year or so, 
led to other kind of innovations in the world of cybercrime too, where we saw a lot of, say, Twitter bots, um, you know, targeting people to try and get cryptocurrencies um, transferred to them. Like we saw them impersonating people like Elon Musk and Vitalik Buterin, um, the founder of Ethereum, who um, was one of the favorites, I think, for getting targeted with the, by these Twitter bots where they would say, oh, you know, transfer zero, 0.001 Ethereum to me and I'll transfer you one Ethereum. But it was all fake accounts, obviously. Yeah. They're saying this not yeah. actually Elon Musk. Um, but, you know, so that like that was kind of a byproduct of the increasing value of cryptocurrencies and the increasing attention in this area. Um, and as well, as well, the law has been kind of slow to catch up, as is often the case with kind of cybersecurity issues, um, because it's really kind of a tricky one, because as we say, like it's not necessarily very detectable and things. Um, but we have seen some cases of, um, in Japan especially, there has been some people convicted for injecting coin mining scripts onto web pages and things. So that's another area where it'll be interesting to see what happens. But I don't think crypto jacking and coin mining is something that's going anywhere. I think it will definitely still be a feature on the cyber security landscape for the foreseeable future. So I think while we've seen um, something of a drop off in the activity in this area in the last year, it's definitely something that's still one of the biggest trends for 2018 and probably for the next little while as well. I guess it's probably fair to say that as long as cryptocurrency values stay high or relatively high, there's always going to be an interest in, in this. Exactly. Like once someone is making money from it, it's always going to be there. Yeah. Okay. And um, we had one more item we wanted to talk about, uh, which is about um, Apple's iPhone X. Uh, because I think we had a case uh, this week where uh, a suspect was compelled to unlock their phone using uh, Face ID. Uh, you know more about this, don't you? Yeah, so this is thought to be the first case of its kind where this has happened, um, where someone has been compelled to use their face to unlock their phone using Face ID, which I suppose was something that was definitely discussed at the time, I think, when this came out, that people could potentially be tricked into unlocking their phones. But um, in this case, authorities in the US, um, the FBI, I believe, got a warrant um, to compel a suspect to unlock their iPhone X using, the, using this Face ID. Now, we have seen incidents in the past where people have been forced to use Touch ID, but um, this, is, uh, this is thought to be the first case where we've seen Face ID used. Um, so Forbes, I think, wrote about this, and they said that on the 10th of August, the FBI searched the home of a 28-year-old man as part of an investigation into alleged child abuse. And they demanded that he unlock his iPhone 10 with um face using the face facial recognition technology, um and he did comply, um, now the man in question was later charged with receiving and possessing child pornography. However, the report said that getting past the face ID didn't give officers access to everything they were looking for on the device. Okay. Um, some of the data was still protected by a passcode apparently, and um, so that could not be accessed because authorities. They still can't compel people to reveal their passcodes, though they can compel them to unlock devices with fake with face ID um, or with touch ID. So apparently they couldn't get past the passcode. And they were also a bit limited because the device only remained unlocked for about an hour. So there was a time limit on what they were able to do. 
Um, but when this went to court, um, it was revealed in the court documents that uh, the authorities in this case, which was actually the Ohio FBI, Ohio Bureau of Investigation and the Columbus Police Department, they said that they had access to, and I'm quoting now, technological devices that are capable of obtaining forensic extractions from locked iPhones without the passcode. So basically, presumably, they purchased the services of someone like Grayshift or Cellbrite, okay. who are the phone, the phone hacking kind of companies that are able to unlock iPhones um, for a price. But I suppose this case is interesting because it's the first of its kind and I suppose it's a sign of things to come of what's going to happen as facial recognition technology becomes kind of more common security practice on devices. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I think anytime something new like this gets rolled out, you, you just know there's going to be a test case as yeah. to whether law enforcement are allowed uh, you know, use it or, or compel somebody to, 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 to use it. So um, it was probably only a matter of time before we saw it um, come in front of the courts. Um, okay, um, I think that's about all we have time for this week. Um, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to subscribe to avoid uh, missing out on your weekly dose. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at Threat Intel or Medium at medium.com forward slash Threat hyphen Intel. If you want to read our latest research, including uh, Stevens and Bridget's, check out our blog, which can be found at semantic.com forward slash blogs forward slash threat hyphen intelligence. Uh, we'll be back again next week when we'll be once again discussing what's happening in the world of cybersecurity. Until then, thank you and goodbye.